0: Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts, Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. I'm Lucia Rahili.
1: So when I think about 23, I I think diversity seems to be something that, you know, on, on many different dimensions, not just gender, something that continues to hold us back. I think more needs to be done here. That's Brooke, joining Brian and me to talk about
0: the most important talent themes of 2023 and how they could influence organizations in 2024. Brooke, Brian, welcome to the podcast.
2: Great to be here. Great
0: to be back. So, 2023, we sailed into it on the rapids that were Gen AI and the choppy, whitewater of an uncertain economy, but there are obviously a range of dynamics at play affecting the talent landscape last year. Reflecting on the close of another year, what would you call out in particular as having shaped talent contours for twenty twenty three? And I'll tee you up first, Brooke, let's start with Gen
1: AI, just because it's been the shiny new thing this year. The interesting thing about Gen AI is The topics have been across the C-suite, right? And I, I think, you know, everyone has kind of a line in to Gen AI because the use cases spanned so many different domains. From a talent perspective, I think we're seeing two different things happening. One, the HR function is figuring out, right, what use cases are most relevant to them. I think there are some ways in which CHROs are already, you know, making some strides. You see uh, use cases around talent acquisition. For instance, you see help desk, right, in terms of the services that HR offers its employees. And then I think the other thing you're seeing from a talent perspective is, of course, if you look at any use case, that could be software coding, right, in the product development part of the organization. How is talent broadly impacted? How are roles changing? What are the new skill sets required? That's a huge question is clearly coming to the forefront. Brian, anything to add there?
2: The things out of the gate now, there are some of the quick wins that HR teams and other teams can get. So we're seeing implementations of things like Me at Campus by Walmart that is allowing associates on their home office campus to better navigate some of the HR policies and HR uh, sites. That kind of HR policy bot is the type of immediate quick win we're seeing. You know, We're also seeing, as Brooke mentioned, Turning on technologies from vendors. And so, whether that is a talent acquisition vendor that has some very proven underlying technology, and they're putting a large language model on top.
0: Brian, you and your co authors. Bill Shaninger and Emily Field published your book, Power to the Middle with HBR Press. Talk to us about the year of the manager that's the subject of
2: that book. So I love the phrase, you know, the year of the manager and that 2023 is the year of the manager. And the reason was for as much as we're talking about automation and the next wave of technologies, The folks that are there that are responsible for managing the transitions to work, the ones that are responsible for taking care of their teams are the managers.
1: It would be good to to double click on that one because I do a lot of work from the culture perspective and so there is an increased appreciation for managers being an, a, a significant unlock here. So what are the rituals you need every manager engaging on? What are the the habits, the the routines that you need managers really instilling with their teams to try to drive yes productivity but also I would say, more holistic outcomes, like well-being, experience, right? And that seems to be a different kind of conversation these days, linking managers to culture transformation. Brooke, we saw so many
0: decades of thinning out that middle management layer. Are you seeing a different kind of appetite
1: now for investing in the middle manager in the way that you say? I think what I'm seeing, though, is more investment in the managers that you do have, right? Mm how do you you know recreate their roles and responsibilities so they spend less time on transactional work how do you how do you start to even upskill those managers engage them thoughtfully of course, not just in classroom training, but apprenticeship, coaching, right? Really trying to understand where they have the skill gaps and and planning for career rotations, ways to upskill them in new ways. And I think you got to tell a, a different story around that. For so long, that middle manager layer has been called. You know, unfortunate things like the frozen middle, right? Mm-hmm. So how can you really, you know, kind of give a new branding to that layer of the organization? Mm-hmm.
2: And what's really cool is I'm seeing a number of organizations start to invest behind their managers in a different way. Whether it's Gen AI or other technologies, folks saying, Okay, how can I make the administrative work go away or make it easier? Mm-hmm. Years of self-service may have created administrative back office efficiencies, but put more work on the manager. And I think now we're seeing, hey, through the next technologies, do we make it easier for the manager? So my hope is the changed conversation of this year And the initial investments that we're seeing companies make mean that we don't need 2026 to be another year of the manager (laughs) to remind us all they're still important, but rather, you know, this was the pivot point.
0: So, Brian, you mentioned middle managers and hybrid work and the role they play in hybrid work. So let's talk about that. We're a few years now into this hybrid work phenomenon. Where do we stand here as we look back and also embark on this new year?
2: Office attendance has stabilized at about 30% below pre-pandemic levels. And you know when you ask employees how many days they are spending in the office, and this is of employees that do the type of work that doesn't have to be in person, so we're not asking an ICU nurse, hey, what percentage of time can you work remotely? You know, this is, this is focused on, on those that can. You know, they say 3.5 days. And when you ask them about how many days per week do they want to come in, it's 3.2. And so we're getting at a level where people are coming in roughly the same amount as what they would want to. And we still see a portion of the workforce saying, hey, and if we're required to come in more, we'll leave. Even if that number is 10%, which is what our most recent survey showed, 10% of folks with a scarce skill can make the difference between a successful product launch or an unsuccessful Mm -hmm. one. And I think Mm -hmm. organizations are saying, hey, maybe we've hit the the balance, at least for the current time. It's not saying this is gonna be where it is forever, but we are seeing it stabilize. You know, 2023, when we look back, we'll see the year when this really did hit the new normal and the new balance of uh, in-person, remote, and how we manage those together.
0: Brooke, what are you seeing among your client base? Any interesting
1: examples from your clients? One industrial client that I spend a lot of time with, they did have to make some adjustments early on, like everyone did, but they've been back for a long time. And so what they're focused on is creating new working norms that they think are going to help drive improved performance. One of those is around asking the extra question. Asking the extra question helps to promote cross-functional collaboration. So if I ask the extra question in terms of how my work relates to Brian's work, right, I might get to a different hopefully better answer and certainly avoid duplicative work it also helps in a very tactical sense trying to get for the right people in the right room at the right time Mm
0: -hmm. so burnout has obviously been a focus particularly in the wake of the pandemic how are we faring on employee health employee well-being
1: burnout generally Burnout levels have not decreased. Burnout is a is a very real phenomenon and one organization that I'm working with is actually linking this idea of the manager to burnout and trying to create a new managerial operating system where they can get teams and teams led by managers to a state of thriving, right? So it's not enough to just address burnout. You have to actually move beyond that to truly get to an employee experience to be proud of, right? An an employee experience that will create new opportunity, drive innovation. Do you
0: see your clients measuring well-being using pulse surveys and so forth? It's so easy to get a bead on how employees are feeling now. Is that a widespread practice or not so much?
2: I'd say it is a widespread practice. The depth to which it is surveyed varies pretty differently. Some are a quick pulse that is literally like the one McKinsey does that is a smiley face. We're also seeing other organizations launch much deeper, more robust battery that are getting at different drivers of burnout. And some of that may be actually probing more deeply on some of the underlying drivers that may indicate a broader set of unwellness, Mm -hmm. whether it's mental health or other other pieces. Others are looking at what are the underlying management practices that are leading to us feeling like we can't get everything done. We want to get done in the day. And how do we shift that?
0: And do you see organizations acting on that information? That's, of course, the second the second step there.
1: I'm sure there's opportunity <laughs> on that front. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think you can you can get to the point where you are over measuring such that the conversation becomes a conversation about measurement, mm-hmm. and it never becomes one about action. But I I do think that there are other organizations that are taking real action, and whether they're measuring burnout or well-being or engagement.
2: The other thing that I'm seeing organizations think through is is really dig into, well, why are we feeling burned out? How much of it is linked to your purpose? One of our clients was a big law firm. And they were perplexed because their number of billable hours, so hours per associate, were less than that of some comparable firms. But those other firms had higher associate satisfaction ratings in Above the Law or some of the other journals that measure how well associates think they're doing. And they got into this, so why? Why is it that our folks are working less yet feel less engaged, rewarded? And it comes down to, well, what are the nature of the conversations that your partners are having with folks when they join? What are the nature of the celebrations that we're having after everybody worked really hard? You feel a little less burned out if you feel like you're part of something that really matters Mm -hmm. and that you're appreciated.
0: What about CHROs themselves? What about HR
1: leaders themselves? How's burnout in that? Yeah, great question. If you look at 24, I would expect a lot of change in terms of how HR is really trying to further professionalize. So, that could look like different kinds of collaborations with the business, with their business partners. It could look like getting new kinds of talent in HR, right? It could be reorganizing HR so that it is more agile and dynamic. Brooke, you teed up
0: a nice pivot to looking ahead to 2024. But before we do that, let me ask you both, is there anything else you want to call out from 2023 as sort of a key trend or a primary issue that talent leaders have been navigating
1: or that has shaped the talent landscape? I was pretty struck by McKinsey's recent Women in the Workplace report and the finding that women's ambition levels are higher than ever. And yet we still see stickiness in terms of progress. And I also liked the myth they busted around it's not about the glass ceiling, it's about the broken rung, meaning it's about the transition from an entry level higher to a managerial position. So when I think about twenty three, I you know, I think diversity seems to be something that, you know, on on many different dimensions, not just gender, something that continues to hold us back. I -hmm. I think more needs to be done here.
2: I think the narrative is changing a little bit on chief diversity officers. I think we are seeing, you know, folks react to different court rulings and saying, hey, what do I, what can I do? What should I do in the current environment to advance people who need the most help? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is organizations starting to say, well, how do I make everybody feel like they belong and everybody feel like we are supporting them? And one of the the pieces of uh, data that we've seen through our Women in the Workplace and Race in the Workplace data is that when you have entry level employees, what we see is that people of color perceive that their race holds them back from promotion Mm -hmm. more than white employees. Mm Once they are promoted, everybody thinks that their chance of getting the next promotion goes down (laughs) because of their race. That's a problem. That's a problem in the society more broadly. It's a problem with how people perceive fairness in their companies. It's a problem more broadly. And so while we absolutely need to be thinking about for every person, how do we make sure that they are feeling included, that any barriers that exist are being taken down. I think what we're seeing too is the need to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to succeed and we think about things equitably But let's do it in a way that everybody feels like it's increasing the net fairness of the organization.
0: We talked a little bit about hybrid and the return to the office. And I'm just thinking of the early research during the pandemic that showed that this would actually be favorable in some cases to women and folks of diverse demographics. Are we seeing that play out in any meaningful way as employees return to the office more?
2: I think what we are seeing is the new cohort of workers that are coming in to the into the workforce, coming into the office, are craving apprenticeship, in-person mentoring, in-person leading. And that's whoever they are. They're coming in and say, hey, Mm -hmm. we're more likely to want to come in the office. Mm -hmm. We want to see people. We want to learn. We want to see people around them. What we're also seeing is the mid-level managers or the folks couple level are also the ones balancing an aging parent, right, uh, yeah. kids that you have to manage drop off, a pet that is a, all of life that happens when you are mid-career, right? Mm-hmm. And now there's an expectation of, hey, it's a lot easier for me if I can just do this from home a little more often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the balance is how do we recognize that the need to, hey, a hybrid way of working can actually help us balance what is hard to balance for anybody? Right? How do we make that better? But at the same time, getting those leaders as the ones that are in the office to help providing the mentorship and coaching. And I think it's something that, that that we're gonna need to continue to evolve, continue to work on to making sure we're hitting the right balance. Cause you know, as one of my colleagues said in response to the question, what's the number one amenity that would get people back in the office? I looked across the table and said, It's you. It's you. They want to see you. They don't want the band right. or the sushi or the whatever. And,
1: yeah. It's you. Yeah. No, it's so true. When I I mean, I love that story you told, right? They they want to see you, right? But it, it honestly goes back to the manager point and freeing up the time to mm-hmm. do that, right? Like, if you're going to be a talent magnet, if you're going to be a catalyst for teams, guess what? It takes time mm-hmm. to do that. And so... The, the other trend I would say for 23, again, to make another connection, is on learning and development and how to think about this differently. And I think thinking about learning and development in that kind of holistic way that is driven by the the individual but offers connections to people that are there to help them along the way is really a new way to think about, you know, learning and development, which, you know, for many years was seen more as you know we kind of give some upskilling reskilling training as needed right to to kind of put, paint a stark difference there so i i think that's another one where we're going to see you know some some innovations and hopefully some you know further investments
2: and maybe if i i take that combined with the burn combined with the burnout combined with yeah. well you know some of the things we're talking about maybe one of the things we're saying in 2023 is that we're starting to put the human back in human resources. And maybe that's too aspirational in terms of what the shift is and where it is. But if you look at the underlying threads that we're talking about here, I think feel like there's something that we're that we're all sensing that is about, you know, 23 really reminded us of kind of the human connection.
0: As we look ahead to the next 12 months, what should be top of mind where talent is concerned? What is likely to matter most?
2: The world beyond the company is likely to be a pretty interesting place. It is It is going to be a place where there's going to be a lot going on in the world and a lot going on, you know, that's weighing down our employees, not to mention the specific folks that are, you know, immediate to the various conflicts and, and things that are arising. So I think given a world where where we're walking into a lot of unknown and a lot of tension, and that makes for a challenging environment, and i think one of the things that that we can think through is 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 how do we recognize all of the tragedy sadness emotion that is going on how do we create in the work environment a space that is a little bit separate from the world that's going on outside in that it is a place where we can come together as a team regardless of where we came from, Mm -hmm. where we can think through, hey, even the world outside is crazy and may have impact on our business and some specific businesses, but how do we use that in a way that better connects what we're doing to why we're making a difference in the world?
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I would expect there to be a higher premium on is the ability for leaders you know, up and down the organization to communicate, to communicate in a, an inclusive way, to communicate honoring tensions. Even, Lucia, what you were talking about, you know, gen AI versus purpose and work. How do those two things hang together? Because there's an optimistic view of that and there's a negative view, a view fear of fear. View. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's going to be you know, more around how do managers communicate well in this environment? So often that's left to chance, but, you know, really actually double down on this human-centered approach to leading and managing. Are you seeing your clients talk
0: about increased tensions in interpersonal dynamics in the workplace now or not yet?
2: I think what we're seeing with our clients is that the external world is coming to them. hmm and it's coming to their employees that didn't have anything to do with the external world coming into them. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing organizations try to do is say, how, how do I create a space that is empathetic,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that creates the room for everybody to feel like they belong, that doesn't necessarily require us to wade into every conflict that may be coming? Because there are a lot and it's going to continue. But when when it comes down to how we're working together, just creating consciously a bit more space for us to be together in a way where work feels like it is a bit of a relief mm-hmm. from the external world, rather than work feeling like it is amplifying every tension that is going on. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're seeing this in particular for global companies, right? I mean, there's a couple of headline examples of you know the amplification, Brian, to your point versus creating a space where, you know, you can try to, you know, at least find a little bit of a space apart from that. Any other trends you want to call out for
0: 2024? What about productivity, for example? I think everyone's talking
1: about productivity. Mm -hmm. I think some people are recasting the word productivity, calling it abundance. Productivity has a a little bit of a, a negative connotation. There's a there's a there's different ways to think about productive work or actually better said, productive time. One of the things that I do think will be hot in 24 will be performance management relative to productivity.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think on the performance side, what we're going to see in 24 is, hey, given Gen AI, given these other things, what's the fundamental redesign of how work gets done and how we hold people accountable? And that lens on productivity might lead to some near-term productivity initiatives from technology or other pieces, but it's going to be a frame of what's the organization of the future. And in that case, it's I, I think some of the bolder thinking, bigger thinking is going to come to the fore. And by the way, productivity is not just cost cutting. Productivity is also increasing revenue. It's getting more out of the same units of labor. Right. And so I think as we're thinking about productivity enhancements, Gosh, what can be unlocked?
0: Anything else you want to call out?
2: I like skills-based hiring. I still think that's <laughs> I we did a podcast on it. Mm-hmm. I still think that the momentum is is continuing to grow in skill-based hiring. We have 15 plus states where the states have said that they're going to, you know, systematically go through and look at a, where they can eliminate college degree requirements. Mm-hmm.
1: I think there's also going to be a little bit of a re- reprioritization, you know, especially for hard-to-fill roles. Let's stop competing so much on a talent acquisition standpoint and really double down on how to do this internally because I think there's been, you know, some false starts or some nascent work on that, but how really do you create an at-skill, reskilling, upskilling engine for your most critical roles? I think a lot of organizations are are exploring that more rigorously now.
2: I think the other trend I see for 2024 that continues to accelerate is older workers working and staying in the workforce.
0: Interesting.
2: And so there's a great article that came out earlier this month that was on the state of Vermont and how Vermont may be at the cutting edge of what our workforce of the future looks like because Vermont is one of our oldest states. Mm-hmm. But to work at Cabot, you know, the the dairy cooperative that makes cheese and yogurt and, you know, all the things, they need they need workers and there aren't an abundance of young workers in rural Vermont. And so how do you create the shifts? How do you think through the aids that you have so that, you know, if you can't lift something mm-hmm. as you're getting older, that, you know, you're supporting that. How do you think through jobs so that you're making it more attractive for older folks? At the same time, there's research that's coming out, including from our McKinsey Health Institute, that shows that working longer improves your health. Mm-hmm. It creates overall well-being. So it's good for employees and it's good for companies. And what I'm hopeful in 2024 and beyond you know we we start to see more 70 plus workers in the workforce not because they economically need to be there but because they want to be there
0: we spoke earlier about tightness in the manufacturing sector is it possible that automation in the manufacturing sector is at the point where older workers could actually start to fill that gap without that kind of physically taxing
1: labor that you were describing I think this is one that is gathering some steam because the problem statement started with what should our shift strategy be? And it evolved to become what if we completely reimagined our shifts and actually tried to, you know, disaggregate them.
2: After reading the research, I I went home and told my wife, I'm never retiring. (laughs) 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 I'm sure she she was thrilled. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think think she was like, well, um, no, but the but but it's interesting, right, because the. I mean, you may shift in the type of work you do, but being engaged with colleagues, being engaged, having a purpose, I think right. all incredibly good. And in a world where we're short, many types of uh, workers going forward. Think about the care economy. Like my mom worked for uh, an early childhood educator. She's a, a registered nurse. She's an RN by training, Had uh, did a number of things over the course of her career. Uh, after she had retired and after... Her kids, me and my sister, had gone to college. She worked at, as an early childhood educator at a, at a daycare working with preschool kids. And the reason was she didn't need to be a nurse with all the pressure, but the connectivity and being near the kids and doing other things. Early childhood education is one of the biggest gaps we have of need, but we can't meet the need because we don't have the people. I think across sectors, this is going to be an interesting unlock, and we're going to spend more and more time thinking about how we're going to get older workers productive.
0: Brooke, Brian, thanks so much. That was a great discussion. Thank you. It was fun.
2: It was fun. It was great to be with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Brooke Weddle. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time, and be well.